All right, take your Bibles this morning and make your way. First, I'm going to get Sunday to two places to start. Go to Mark 14 and put something in there in your Bible to hold your place. And then go back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. I want to talk to you this morning about what I'm just calling a tale of two gardens. Uh, I was starkly reminded this week um, of the reality of death. <coughs> I do a lot of funerals for the funeral home, and I had one um, earlier in the week. And um, it, not, I, I didn't even get home from that funeral. And I got another call from the funeral home, could I do one the next day? Um, and then uh, my mom's neighbor, uh, their 21-year-old son died on Christmas morning in their home. And then I got a, a friend, a pastor, fellow brother pastor of mine just out the back gate, got a hold of me yesterday, or not yesterday, two days ago. And um, he was made aware that there was a death here in Lake Wildwood and that the uh, the daughter who lived there with her with her older dad uh, was distraught, and so I went over there and prayed with her. And um, it's not always expected, whether you're 84 like that dad was, or 21 like Israel was. Uh, death is death is coming. That's coming for all of us. And um, I was reminded of that very starkly this week. And as I prepared for that first funeral. I was working on a, the family wanted a song, and I love it, uh, In the Garden was going to be part of that funeral. And I was thinking about that as I was working up an introduction, how would I introduce that during that funeral? And it made me think about some gardens in the scripture, two gardens in particularly. Now, when you think of gardens in the Bible, what, what's the first garden that jumps in your mind? Garden of Eden, right, where it all starts. Right, the Garden of Eden. But there's another garden. There are actually several. Um, but what's, what's another garden that we might think of as we move to the Gethsemane? Yeah, and it really is, the, it, that's, that's, that's the two gardens, and I might even throw a third in there at the end as a thought, and that's the garden tomb. Um, apparently the tomb of Christ was in, not unlike we do today, but the nice cemetery was in, was in a garden-type area. Um, but I, the, the thought hit me. Two gardens... And gardens are places that produce life and beauty, provision. There's some sense of, of, of calm and peace in a garden. But what happened in those two gardens? Well, those two gardens changed everything, didn't they? And that's exactly what I want to look at today. So first of all, if you've got your scriptures, turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2. You should already be open there. I probably should be as well. Genesis chapter 2. And look what the Word of God says in verse number 8. Now, <laughs> God's been in His creative um, work uh, up through this sixth day. I'm sorry, i got something going on with my throat today, but we'll be fine. Look at verse 8. Then uh, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. I want you to notice that, first of all, that garden was planted it had purpose to it, didn't it? Now, God, up to that point, God just said, let there be, and what? There Boom, there it was. But, 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 but not so with Eden. God said, no, this is going to be different. I'm going to plant a garden. i got a purposeful, I'm going to get my hands dirty on this one. I'm going to actually plant this garden east in Eden. 
And notice what it says in the rest of that verse. And there, where? In Eden. And there he put the man whom he had formed. You ever seen that before? Have you ever noticed that before? Adam, this blew me away. Adam was not formed in the domesticated dust of Eden. God made Adam in the wild. And I'm going to tell you something, I don't want to get into this too far, but God put that, that wild in all, every man. God, God made every man for an adventure, a holy adventure. He really did. And God makes Adam in the wild, but he, put, he places him in a prepared place. And I want you to notice that about God. Listen to me. God always makes the environment that will produce the flourishing for that which he creates. He makes the environment first. What happens? The water comes before the fish show up. The sky, God makes the sky before he puts birds in it. And God makes Eden before he makes man. Because if, imagine if God made fish without water. Right? They need that environment in which to flourish. Right? Imagine if God made, made uh, plants without sun. They need that environment in which to flourish. Fish needs water. Birds need sky. Plants need soil and sunlight. And let me tell you something, man needs Eden. And that should make us wonder for a second, what, what is Eden? Well, it's a garden, but what does the word mean? There's some, it's very interesting. It, it's made up of three Hebrew words. And uh, you might, it's not on the screen, but you might just jot this down. The word Eden, uh, the first word is noon, just like our noon, N-O-O-N. And it is pictured in their stroke kind of as a fish, but what it represents is life and activity. It's doing life, being active, doing what God called you to do. That's one of the strokes, the first one. The second one's called Dalet, and these are all pretty phonetically spelled, D-A-L-E-T. And it's pictured as a door. Dalet, the, the, the drawing, is kind of like Chinese writing, Hebrew. is it, It's pictorial. It's a cuneiform writing. It's a door that opens up to a pathway. So a door that we enter to a pathway of life. You getting that picture so far? And the last one, this one's beautiful. It's, it's called uh, Ayin, and it's A-Y-I-N. And that is pictured kind of like it sounds. You hear the word I in there? It literally has the idea of eye um, and sight, proximity. Um, it's to see, to know, and to experience. So the idea here is that, that there is a, um, the activity of life happens. Life and flourishing happens when you enter the door to life and you live under the eye of God and you see God as he is. And you experience him as he is. Eden could be said, a good definition of Eden um, could be said as a place where you would open the door and enter the pathway that led to life in the presence of God. You see why without water, fish dies. Without soil and sunlight, plants die. And I'm going to tell you something. Without Eden, without living in the face of God, in relationship to God, man malfunctions. And he destroys his family. He kills people. He commits adultery. He becomes a horrible person because man was created for Eden to live under the eye of God. You see it this morning? So that is the Garden 
of Eden. And interestingly enough, look at verse 9 of chapter of 2 of Genesis. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. God gave them everything they needed, but notice this. Now he's going he's gonna to tell us about two of those trees. <coughs> notice the tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees that represent two choices. Now that tree of life we understand as we read a little further into the historical record represents eternal life. And we know about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, don't we? Because of our first father. Um, and God put them both there with one command and one choice. And that choice is eternal life or death. Then the second garden, keep your finger there in Genesis. But the, the second garden we find, this is interesting to me too. This account is actually found in all four Gospels. Uh, most of John doesn't show up in any of the other Gospels, but this, this section does. Even John records it. But we'll go to Mark, because we've been hanging out in Mark all of 20 and 23. So go there to Mark and um, 14. I'll give you a little bit of context. Jesus has just conducted the Passover, the last one he's going to ever have with those guys until he is resurrected and his kingdom comes in full and uh, he's already dismissed Judas and uh, to go betray him and the fellow <laughs> it's interesting nobody gets it he says yeah the guy that's dipping the bread in the, in the oil with me that's the guy and there's only one guy doing it and it's Judas and he says whatever you do go do quickly and Judas gets up and leaves nobody gets it the record says yeah they all thought he was just going to give some money to the poor they never suspected he was the betrayer. And then Jesus gets pretty gut level honest with them in verse 27 through 31, and it's a tough, it's a tough thing. But uh, Jesus basically says, yeah, every one of you are going to be ashamed of me tonight before the night's over, and you're all going to run away. The shepherd is going to be smitten, and the sheep are going to scatter. And every one of them to a man, of course, starting with Peter, says, yeah, maybe those guys, but not me. I'm, I'm with you. I'm ready to go with you to prison and death. Well, we know how that worked out, didn't we? And then the Bible says, the historical record tells us in verse number 12, then they came. So they got up and they left the upper room, um, most likely the uh, house that belonged to Mary Magdalene. Um, they left that upper room, and the Bible says, and they came to a place which is named what church? Gethsemane. So now we're in Gethsemane. Um, and that word has a meaning. Um, that word actually means olive press. Now, Gethsemane was a garden, if you will, that was located in the center of an olive grove. A bunch of olive trees were in this area. And this is where you would find Gethsemane. It was a grove in which a, a large, in the middle was a large olive press where olives would be crushed by a, by a stone weighing almost 1,000 pounds. It would crush these olives, and out of the bottom of it would flow the valuable oil. 
And there's no mistaking the name. Jesus comes and he is crushed by the weight of the cup that he is about to drink. Look at the scripture says, verse 12, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter and James and John, that's the inner circle, the three, took him with him and they went a little further and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. And he said to them, look at this, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. I, I'm overwhelmed. Stay here and watch. And the idea is watch and pray. And he went a little further and fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. We understand in Luke's account that Luke, the doctor, the physician, says, records through Peter's testimony, that Jesus actually sweat blood. That is a, an actual um, medical condition called hematosis. And what happens is when you are under great stress and anxiety, the blood vessels around your sweat glands burst because of stress. And you're literally, the, the blood and the sweat are mixed together as they fall. They've seen this happen um, in, in different battle scenarios over the years, specifically in World War I during trench warfare. Horrible anxiety. The, literally the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. One skilled writer put it this way and I, I thought it was helpful it was dark as 12 men crossed the brook in the early hours of the morning shimmers of light from the not too distant city cast ominous shadows through the garden of gnarled oak branches Gethsemane was what they called the olive press so prominently exposed in the heart of that grove 11 men lay down to rest. One lone figure knelt to pray. It was a night for evil, and the drama of our hope was beginning to unfold in the colorless recesses of the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. And I want to say one more thing about that garden before we start to contrast those two gardens. That was Jesus' prayer place. That, this was not an unfamiliar walk for those disciples when they were in Judea, which is the southern part of Israel, <laughs> which was at least uh, three times a year. Jesus went there to pray all the time. They all knew it. He said, how do you know, Pastor Paul? Because Judas is going to show up. How does Judas know where he's going to be? Because Judas had been there with him before after Passover. That's where they went to pray. That's where the teacher always went. The rabbi's prayer spot was where they crushed the olives. And Jesus is crushed under the weight of our sin. So I want you to notice this morning the contrasts. The contrast between these gardens. Um, I know little Sophia here. Her dad told me this morning, he said, Sophia took one look at the outline and she said, boy, we're going to be here all day. <laughs> Isn't that funny? That's not funny. Pray for her. <laughs> I thought that was cute. But let's, let's look at the contrast between these two gardens this morning. And they literally just jump off the page. And this hit me as I presented the gospel at this funeral. Kind of impromptu, I just kind of laid it out. And then I, then I couldn't get it off my mind. And with all of these deaths that happened in such a short amount of time, I went back and I looked at it. And this is what I discovered. 
It's, it's not rocket science, but I think it's telling. First of all, I want you to notice there were two gardens and there were two conversations. There's a conversation in each garden. In the Garden of Eden, there was a conversation with Satan. Now, in our first parents' defense, they didn't know who they were dealing with yet. But they were fixing to find out, weren't they? Yeah. But they, they have a conversation with Satan, and we see that right there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Now, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he, the serpent, said to the woman, Has God indeed said, Y'all can't eat of, of any of the trees in the garden? <laughs> right? <coughs> By the way, folks, if, if, if a snake starts talking to you, yeah, run, I'm out. <laughs> but apparently, apparently in the Garden of Eden, it makes sense to me. And I think it's going to be this way in the restored kingdom. I think animals will be able to communicate. We, we, we even now can communicate at some level with dolphins and, and um, uh, other types of monkeys. We can, so there's, there's communication that's there. I don't think this was a big deal. This is pre-fall. That's part of what the poor creation suffered. When Adam sinned. So they're having a conversation with Satan. But they don't know it. It's a serpent. But when you go to Mark's gospel, we see that Jesus goes a little further and he what? Prays. Who's Jesus talking to? God. As a matter of fact, in, we're going to be flipping back and forth, but in Mark 14, you can't miss this. Verse number 36. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. He's in his moment of crushing. He feels the weight of Calvary. He and it's not the physical. It's what's going to happen there. The sinless Son of God is going to literally swallow our sin and become sin for us. And he can feel the evil that is about to identify with him. But notice how he talks. He says, Abba, Father. And you probably know this if you've hung out in church any length of time. That word Abba is, is what, Anne-Marie, what do your kids call Thomas what, to his face? Daddy. That's the word. Daddy. Now, I don't know what age it is that children stop calling your, their father's daddy, but I think that's a sad day. Isn't it? Why? What's happening? They're growing up. They're, they're becoming young men and, and young women. That relationship changes. I don't know how it happened, but over the last few years of my dad's life, I took to calling him Pop. That's my version of Abba, because I wanted to be I wanted to be closer now. I wanted our relationship to be tight, and God opened all the doors for that in some strange and beautiful ways that I really got to know Him. Abba, Daddy, Pop, help me. He. He is crying. He is, this is the Son of God talking to God the Father. So his conversation here is, with, and well, notice what he says. I'm dying here. I, I don't think I can handle this. He said, and I, here's what I know. I know that with you, what? All things are possible. Oh, listen to me. There's a, there's a, there's a message in here for you and I today. When you're being crushed, you go to your Father God and, and, and you remember all things are possible with him. Amen. Right? So here's my question here. Just jot it down. It's not on the screen, but jot it down. Who are you talking to? Is that a fair question? Who are you talking to? Where are you going to get your advice from? Going to the internet? 
You go into popular figures, Joe Rogan and Peterson, the psychologists, interesting fellas. Be careful. Who's got your ear? Who are you talking to? It's a good question. Here's a second one. First thing I want you to notice in, in, in Genesis is in, in this Eden garden, God's word is questioned. God's word is questioned. Look what he said. Man, you got to be kidding me. God made all these beautiful trees and said, y'all can't touch them. Right? He questions God's word. By the way, Satan always does that. And those questions are not designed to strengthen your faith. Those questions are designed to destroy your faith. To cast doubt on the goodness of God. To cast doubt on the fact that all things are possible with you. God's word was questioned. Be careful. Now, can we ask questions of God's word? You better hope so because Carl over here texts me three times a day with questions about the Bible. And Anne Marie right behind him. And I love it. I love it because that tells me you people are, are in the right spot. You're yes, you can question God's word in the sense of wanting to understand what it means and apply it. Be careful who you're going to for your answers. A lot of lying voices. And the worst lying voices out there are the ones that don't even know they're lying. They've been deceived. And they're legitimately deceived. And they will give you bad advice. But I want you to notice in Gethsemane's garden... He says in 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. That's the request. Can you take this cup away from me? I want you to know that, well, the word of God was questioned in Eden. The word questions God in Gethsemane. The word made flesh questions God. And it's not an accusatory question. It is not a question designed to 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 uh, accuse God. It is, it is the heartfelt request of a child to his father to bail me out of this. I'm scared. You ever been scared? Help me out. You can do anything. Is there any other way? By the way, just jot this in there. You know what God loves to hear out of your mouth? His word. His word. <laughs> you, you want a good track to get on for the 20 and 24? Start praying God's word back to him. He loves to hear his word. Where do you think Jesus got with you all things are possible? He wrote it. It's all over scripture. Right? It was in him. Pray God's word back to him. Number three. Number three. So we had the conversation. We had the question. Number three, we're going to look at the motives. Now notice the first motive in Eden. The response was a denial of God's will. Of course, Eve jumps up and says, Oh, no, 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 that's not what God said. We can, we can eat all of them except for this one. The tree and the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now stop for a second. You think Satan knew that? Of course he did. He knew that. Now, Eve adds to it a little bit. She says, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, and if you do, you'll surely die. That's not what God told Adam. 
God told Adam, don't eat of it. He said nothing about touching it. But by the way, if you don't touch it, you're never going to eat it. All right, so somewhere something got switched up in there, and that's all Satan needed was that little bit of a door. And notice, notice Satan's response. It's a denial of God's will. Verse 4, then the serpent said to the woman, you will not really. That word surely means really. You won't really die. And then it gets worse. He goes, let me tell you what's really happening here. God's holding out on you. Because he knows that the day you eat of it, you're going to be just like him, indicating you won't need him anymore. Isn't that something? The response is a denial of God's will. But if you flip back over to Mark's gospel, what do we see here? We don't see a response. We see a request. And it is a determination to do God's will. To do God's will. What does he say um, to his father? Take this cup away from me. Oh, underline this word in your Bible. Nevertheless. That's like the word but. Nevertheless. Uh, and not what I will, but what you will. Not my will, but your will be done in the old King James. That's a request. I want out of this. I'm scared. But, listen, listen, don't, don't miss this church. Saints hear this today. Jesus would rather go literally through hell, eternity in hell in six hours on that cross. He'd rather go through that than to disobey his dad. And by the way, if you're a child here today, y'all better perk your ears up. It is not okay to disobey your parents. I don't care how old you are. Who do you think you are? One day you're going to stand over their casket. And you know what your regrets are going to be? The times you dishonored and disobeyed them. You better pay attention. Say amen or ouch. He was not going to, he would rather, he would rather suffer than disobey and miss his father's will. Man, talk about a, a contrast. One is trying to, one garden, God, is a denial of God's will, and the other garden is a determination to do God's will no matter what. So here's a question Whose will are you doing? Maybe more important, who, whose will are you interested in? Let me put it this way. Who are you living for? Who's on the throne of your life? Who, who, who are you worshiping? Who are you looking to to provide for your needs, to give you the answers that are so deep in your heart that stuff keeps you up at night? Jot these scriptures down, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Put all your weight on the Lord. And in all your ways, what? Acknowledge Him. You go to God. God is the umpire that calls balls and strikes in your life. And when you do that, if you do that, all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. I like how the one version puts it. He will make your path straight. And oh, we need to be on some straight paths today, huh? But that doesn't happen if you don't give God the authority and the, and the open say, I am yours. I, I'm the servant. You're the master. You tell me what to do, and I'll be busy about doing that. 
First Thessalonians, jot it down, 4.3. I'm going I'm to hoe in your pea patch this morning. It is God's will. He said, I don't know what God's will is. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, right out of the word of God. It is God's will that you should be sanctified. What does sanctified mean? It means set apart for God's use. It means, it means to look more like Jesus and less like you. And then Paul qualifies what sanctified means. Look at this. That you should avoid sexual immorality. You say, well, what's that, preacher? That means any sexual expression outside of the covenant of marriage. That's God's will for you. Avoid it. Within marriage, enjoy it. Outside of marriage, avoid it. Within marriage, it's glue. Outside of marriage, it'll destroy you. And it will. You're sinning against God, and the Bible says later you're sinning against your own body. That's, I don't know what God's will is. Start there. Commit your sexuality to God. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, here's another one. Give thanks in all circumstances. That means when times are good and when times are what, church? Not so good or bad. Look at what Paul finishes. By the way, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. What's God's will for my life? Be pure. And then Paul says, be thankful. Be thankful. Oh, I, this one hurts me. Oh, I'm telling you what. I get so frustrated with myself sometimes. How unthankful. God has really just convicted the fire out of me in that area. We need to be more thankful than we are, don't we? And by the way, when you're thanking God, you know what's going to happen? You're going to be thanking the people around you that God put in your life. My wife's dad is, is, is such a good man. And he is the king of the thank you note. I bet you that guy has written tens of thousands of thank you notes in it. I mean, you do, take him out to lunch. I mean, I'm talking fast food. He writes you a thank you note. What in the world? That's God's will in Christ Jesus concerning you, that we be thankful for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. One more. Actually, two more. Hebrews 13, verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back the dead of our Lord, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep, look at this, equip you with everything good why would he equip you for everything good? Here's that hint of clause that, that uh, Pastor Friel talked to us about. To the end of or for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God has equipped us through the blood of Christ to do his will. You know what that means? Just write it down. I don't have an excuse. God just removed all my excuses. All of my yeah buts just went out the window. You know what's right. Do it because God's equipped you. And then the last one, Luke 9, 23. Then he, Jesus, said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. I have a question here for you. When's the last time you said no to you? I, I say this a lot, and it's true. Children, especially young children, need a healthy dose of vitamin D. They really do. And I have to say, 
I want to commend my own adult children here who have children, Paul and Courtney and then my daughter Anna and her husband Joseph. Those kids are full up with that vitamin no. They get no a lot. You know why you say no as a parent? Because there's something better in the yes. We're settling for too little. And when's the last time you told your fallen flesh no because your spirit said yes? Real quick, number four. Let me look at the decisions. What decisions came out of these two gardens? Well, the first one's pretty clear. It was rebellion. Rebellion. So when the woman, verse 6 saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasing, pleasant to the eyes, and, and a, a tree desirable to make one wise. She was already fooled at that point. She took of its fruit and ate. Now notice this. She also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And I've said this before, but some of you have not heard it. Adam was with her the whole time. He was with her the whole time. By the way, husbands, when, when, when you see something in your home... Maybe in your wife's, so be careful here, but in your wife's life, that's off, it's left to center, you better jump in there and get between her and that serpent. Amen? You better jump in there and get between your children and that lying devil because Satan wants to destroy them. We got to suck it up sometimes and have some hard conversations. And I know why you don't want to do that. Same way I don't want to do it. Because I know if I tell her, you know what, babe, here, here, here's something's going on here, and I don't think it's good. You know what she's going to say to me? Well, i got about ten things I think's going on with you, and it's not good either. <laughs> right? Am I, am I lying or telling the truth? Here's the thing. Repent. God gave you that woman because as a gift, she ain't your enemy. She's your life partner. And if she sees that in your life, you ain't that smart. Everybody else is seeing it too. And it's messing you up and it's messing up your family. That don't mean she gets off the hook. That means you better get on your knees. And when she sees you repent, you reckon she'll be more likely to join you. Just saying, fellas, you hear me, you are responsible to God for that family. You will answer to God for that family, not her. That's why God gave us shoulders. That's why C.S. Lewis said the problem of his day, worse than ours, is that we have men without chests who bear nothing and blame everybody. Don't be that way. It was a rebellion that came about. Adam was with her, and then the Bible says they're terrible. Worst verse in the Bible. Adam 8, verse 7, then the eyes of them both were open. First thing they knew is that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves coverings. Blew it. Bible tells us specifically in the New Testament, Eve was deceived. Satan tricked her. <coughs> Adam knew the score. Bible says Adam ate willingly. Adam willingly rebelled. And I think it's in there. The old, the old rabbis would say this, and I agree with them. The human race does not fall until Adam eats. And when Adam eats, the eyes of them both were open, not until. Fellas, be careful what you're eating. Tolerate no rebellion in yourself first. And before you lay down the law in your home, you better lay down your life before God. Rebellion. Oh, look at the beauty. 
of, of the crushing Gethsemane. What is the decision there? Nevertheless, here it is, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus said no to his humanity. He refused to rebel. Listen, the first garden put us in that mess. The second garden got us out. The first Adam messed it up for everybody. The last Adam, as Jesus is called in Scripture, the last Adam restored Eden to the hearts of mankind. Because instead of rebelling, he resigned himself to the Father's will. And then the last one, this is obvious, is it not? The results. In Eden, God was good to his word, and the result was death. Now, there's a little bit of a problem with that. <laughs> one of my kids, when they were younger, asked me. I was reading it, and he's like, well, how come there's any more chapters in all the Bible? Why didn't they just die and end of the whole story? No more people. Good question. You know, Adam don't kill over. Matter of fact, Adam doesn't kill over for several hundred more years. They lived a long time because God made them perfect. Took a while for the sin principle and the death principle to catch up with his physical body. So their physical didn't die. Depending on how you understand the makeup of man, I don't think their soul died in the sense that they still had an intellect, an emotion, and a will. They still had a thinker, a feeler, and a chooser. There's only one part left, and that's your spirit. That's the real you at the core of your being. That's what's made in the image of God. God made you a spirit because he is a spirit, and he created man to have a relationship with him, spirit to spirit. And that spirit is what I believe absolutely died the minute, the second that Adam bit into that fruit. They ceased to be rightly related to God. The Bible says they were dead to God, Paul tells us in Romans, and alive to sin. And it was on. And if you want to see what a big mess that made, read the rest of the Bible from Genesis until you get to the New Testament. It's one disaster after another. And you and I have been living in that disaster. We see it on the news every night. The result is death, but all oh, the result of Gethsemane, the crushing of the Son of God, the result of that resignation to no matter what, do the Father's will on behalf of His creation, to take what was dead in Eden and resurrect it to life in Gethsemane. It led to eternal, life eternal. It led to life eternal. In the shadow of of the cross, of the cross work of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God killed those animals in the garden and their skin covered the nakedness and shame of Adam and Eve. And that was a foreshadowing of what would happen in the death of Jesus. Jesus hung naked on that cross and his blood cleanses and removes our sin, as the scriptures say, as far as the east is from the west. What are you doing with that today? We got a brand new year in front of us, and I always struggle. What am I going? There's two sermons that are hard for me because I want to get them right, and I want to make sure I'm, I'm tracking with, with God. And that's this one, the last sermon of the year, and it's the one I'm going to preach next week, which is the first sermon of the new year. 
I came across this and it really blessed me. I, I was looking actually for a graphic for the title screen and I just put in there a tale of two gardens. I thought of that after that funeral for a good title. And I came across a poet named Malcolm Gweet. He, uh, he is connected with the Gettys. And last year he wrote this poem, believe it or not, called A Tale of Two Gardens. And I wanted to share it with you before I call us to repentance today and prayer and praise. It says this, God gave us all a garden once and walked with us at eve that we might know him face to face with no need to believe but we denied and hid from him concealing our own shame yet he still came back to look for us and call us each by name he found us where we hid from him and he clothed us in his grace but still we turned our backs on him and would not see his face. So now he comes to us again, not as Lord Most High, but weak and helpless as we are, that we might hear him cry. And he who clothed us in our need lies naked in the straw, that we might wrap him in our rags whom once we fled in awe. The strongest comes in weakness now. A stranger at our door. The king forsakes his palaces and dwells among the poor. Listen to this. And where we hurt, he hurts with us. And when we weep, he cries. He knows the heart of all our hurts and the inside of our sighs. He does not look down from above, but gazes up at us, that we might take him in our arms, who always cradles us. And if we welcome him again with open hands and heart, he'll plant his garden deep in us, the end from which we start. And in that garden, there's a tomb whose stone is rolled away where we and all we've ever loved were lowered into clay. But lo, the tomb is empty now and clothed in living light. His ransomed people walk with one who came on Christmas night. So come, Lord Jesus Find in me the child you came to save. Stoop tenderly with wounded hands and lift me from my grave. Be with us all, Emmanuel, and keep us close and true. Be with us till that kingdom comes where we will be with you. It's a new year starting tomorrow. And I have one question. What garden are you going to live in this year? Where are you living? And is it time that God makes some changes in your life? If you can think of a sin that you're not giving up right now in your life, and if you can't think of one, ask your spouse. If that don't work, ask your kids. Seriously. If you can think of one that you're not giving up, you know what garden you're living in.
Jesus would rather go through hell, literally, than disobey his Father. May we ask God right now that we might live in Gethsemane. We might accept whatever that crushing might be because out of it is going to flow something of beauty and use for our Lord. Amen? Would you stand with me and pray? Our, our musicians will come. But let's ask the Lord to give us that beautiful gift of, of repentance, of turning away from our sin and turning towards our Savior, that we might live in Gethsemane, that we might be committed to doing God's will instead of thwarting it being done in our life and that He might get all the glory. Father, we come to You today. We thank You for the tale of these two gardens. It's true. And Lord, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm alone in this room. I'm ashamed of how much time I spent in the wrong garden. Well, we should be. But I thank you that Jesus came to cover our shame, remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. And Lord, even now, Holy Spirit, as your convincing and convicting work is taking place in hearts all around this room, I pray that if any sin is brought to the mind that right now, right here, it would be rejected. That there would be a determination to do whatever it takes to obey and to live holy before you this year. That we would move out of Eden, leave no forwarding address, and move into Gethsemane. Be committed to obedience, knowing that with you all things are possible. Awaken us to what real life is and what you intended. In Jesus' name, amen.